Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Research suggests that as many as one in three college students in the United States may be participating in what are known as slut pages. These are basically covert online groups where nude or partially nude photos of women are shared without their consent. In some ways, you can think of this as a form of revenge porn, given that shame and humiliation are sometimes at the root of why these images are shared. However, it goes far beyond that. For some, slut pages are a twisted game where people are awarded points for obtaining nude photos of specific women, and they're building social status among their peers off of the humiliation of someone else. So let's explore this phenomenon of slut pages. We're going to discuss who's making and visiting these pages, the motivations behind them, how slut pages affect victims and what they can do when they're discovered, as well as how to stop this behavior. We're also going to explore some gender dynamics here. For example, while most people who visit slut pages are men, some women participate in them as well. So why do some women participate in the slut shaming of other women? I am joined today by Dr. Megan Moss an associate professor in human development and family studies at Michigan State University. Her award-winning research, recognized by the American Psychological Association and funded by the National Institutes of Health, focuses on media impacts on adolescents' sexual and mental health. She has been training teachers, social workers, and school counselors on pornography use among teens for the last decade. This is going to be a really interesting and important conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. OhMyGodYes.com is a website with findings from the largest ever research study into women's pleasure. In partnership with Kinsey Institute researchers, tens of thousands of women were asked what made their pleasure better, both solo and with partners. And then they found the patterns in those discoveries and organized all of that wisdom on OMGS.com in the form of super honest videos, animations, and how-tos. It's a fantastic resource that can help you to find new things you didn't even know that you or your partner liked. Visit omgs.com slash Justin to learn more and enjoy 33% off. This is also an incredible tool for therapists and clinicians to advance your knowledge and provide evidence-based care for your clients. It provides data that normalizes diverse experiences, a guide to varied pleasure techniques, and a framework for couples to explore their preferences. Clinicians and therapists can get a free personal membership by visiting omgs.com slash doctors. That's omgs.com slash doctors. Enhance your sexual performance with FirmTech. Check out their tech ring, which is designed to give you harder, longer-lasting erections while also tracking your erectile fitness. Wear it at night to monitor nocturnal erections and cardiovascular health, or wear it during lovemaking for a boost in the bedroom. Unlike other erection rings, Firmtex is easy to put on, adjustable to your comfort, and it can go on whether you're hard or soft. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Hi, Megan, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Before we dive into your research, I'd like you to tell us briefly a little bit about your professional journey. So how did you originally get into the world of sex research and education? 
Mine was a little different than most. So I actually started out as a production assistant in Hollywood for a number of years and, you know, on film sets and things. And I was determined to not go to college. But then after a series of of sicknesses and having difficulties getting antibiotics or just like straight up medical care, I was like, you know, I need to go. I need to go to school just for the health insurance alone. But I started out going to school for film because I was just really interested in the human experience and what makes us human. Why do we do the things we do? And a similar trajectory of like, oh, well, this isn't actually going to make me any money or give me any stability either. So maybe I should be like an addiction therapist. And I realized I had no patience for that. And so I kind of settled in health education for a while. So I became a certified health education specialist and did sex ed for Planned Parenthood and and then some sexual violence prevention for California State University, Sacramento or Sacramento State University. And I fell in love with research. And I had an instructor who said, you know, you think like a scientist. And I was just sort of like, I do, really? I could, I could do science? And so... Now I really feel like my life is a great synergy of all of these pieces of like media literacy, health education, and sex science and doing everything from an evidence-based lens. And so, yeah, I feel like um, I get to kind of really live of several of my dreams all together in this position. Well, I love that. And I like asking this question because I always learn things about people. I didn't know about your Hollywood background. And it has me thinking, you know, if you're looking for another career path in the future, I just interviewed a certified intimacy coordinator for the show. And I was like, oh, you know, someone with your background with the Hollywood stuff and with health education and sex ed and all that stuff could be a great intimacy coordinator. That would be so much fun. I often think about that whenever I, as I listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm still very much in sync with a lot of like the film industry stuff and have documentary filmmaker friends and get involved with some of their work. But this whole intimacy coordinator thing was not a thing when I was on sets. It was still very coercive then and terrifying or like, awkward, you know, the best case scenario was just awkward. So now I'm like, wow, they're really approaching this from a way that is only going to make the art better. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's surprising in some ways and sad that it's only been in the last five years or so that we've actually had intimacy coordinators on set who are helping to ensure that sex scenes are filmed in a way that is consensual and, you know, respects everybody who is involved in that production. But yeah, it it wasn't an option when (laughs) we were coming of age and figuring out our career paths. But maybe if we're looking for a second act later in life, that might be it. So you study a number of different things, but a lot of your work has focused on online sexual behavior and the impacts of exposure to sexualized media. And one of the topics that you've been researching lately is the phenomenon of slut pages. So let's start with the definitional question of what is a slut page? That is such a great question. Um, So we defined it as a secret but social media platform where you can share images and videos. This is typically for a 
pre-identified group. So unfortunately, what's common is, you know, among fraternities or sports teams, or um, they were first documented by uh, Nancy Jo Sales in, I believe her book is titled American Teenagers and the Secret Life of Social Media or Social Media and the Secret Life of American Teenagers. But she uncovered what they called slut pages in high schools, like sluts of Oakmont High or what have you. And then she followed that up with some work in the military and found that different branches of the military had these as well. And when I was a graduate student at Penn State, uh, one of the fraternities sort of got in trouble or their slut page was found out on a Facebook group. And at the time I was like, what, you know, what is this? And I had some undergrad RAs in my lab that I was directing and I asked them about it and they're like, oh yeah, every fraternity has one. They originally tried to get it shut down. This one fraternity tried to get it shut down because it was a Facebook group. It was easy to find. And I asked them what they thought about it because in this particular instance, they had images and video of young women who were passed out unconscious naked and they propped their bodies in different positions. And it was definitely with the intention to humiliate and in some cases even document some violence. But I really got the sense from the undergrads that they all thought it was funny. And that's kind of what happened, what uh, what Nancy Joe Sales found is that among the high schoolers, a lot of them described it as funny. And I thought, well, you know, that's not funny though. So what, but I think it's just because we're so uncomfortable with it. We don't know what to call it. These research assistants definitely described feeling like a relief that they weren't on the page and a sense of sympathy for the girls who were. But there wasn't like a, an overall sense of there's some problems with this. And then subsequently, even though the chapter was shut down at Penn State, they did not face any criminal or civil charges, despite like some pretty heavy documentation of abuse. So when I came to Michigan State University, I thought, you know, we got to ask about this stuff. So let's put it in a survey. Let's figure out how we can measure it by talking to some undergrads here and finding out, yes, they call them slut pages. What I have since found, though, is that a lot of particularly younger, like high schools, middle schools, they call them burn pages or exposed pages. Because I bring it up pretty much every semester with my human sexuality students. And I'm like, is this still a thing? Was this a thing? What did you all make of this? And I get a sense that it is pretty common, you know, anecdotally. But there's also a sense that people are like, oh, I can't believe we did that in high school. Like, we're not going to participate in that now. But it's an interesting cultural phenomenon, I think, especially when it comes to online sexual experiences. Yeah. And so you said these are kind of underground and secret. And you mentioned Facebook is where some of these pages have existed. But they also often exist in places that aren't so easily accessed or identified, right? And that's one of the things that can make them hard to get shut down. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of times they could be private Instagram pages, certainly websites with logins. Sometimes they're just an email listserv. So it can be difficult to sort of get in and yeah, I think legally it's also hard to define 
as a type of what's now called image-based sexual abuse is like an umbrella term for non-consensual pornography and dissemination of people's intimate videos and things. Yeah. And in terms of the legal implications there, we've seen a number of states recently that have started to pass laws to try and regulate some of this stuff. And a lot of that has come up in the context of what's known as revenge porn, which is when people will non-consensually post nude images or sex videos of an ex-partner somewhere online, usually as a way of getting back at them. And so that was something that I was curious about in reading your work is whether slut pages should be thought of as a form of revenge porn or if there's something different about them. You know, what's the connection between those two things? It's a great question. I think it seems like the slut pages are a celebratory kind of bonding experience almost. I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's just only heterosexual men who do this, but it tends to be like we've what we found in our study is that men were more likely to visit and post than women. But among men, men in fraternities and who participated in group sports, team sports like football and basketball and lacrosse and rugby, they tended to visit and post more than other men. And uh, we didn't find a difference between sexual identity and visiting, but we also didn't really have the power to test between too many sexual identities. But we could probably assume that a lot of it is heterosexual men kind of trying to bond with each other about their sexual experiences and conquests or what have you. There was a sexting scandal, for lack of a better term, um, in Colorado that sort of alerted schools to many of, of this type of thing, which I'm not sure if it would qualify as a slut page, but it's pretty similar where teens store nudes that they share with each other in what are called like vault apps. So we asked about vault apps, but we weren't specific enough, I think, in our connection to using them for slut pages in general, but we did see a number of people who cited using vault apps to store nudes. But this particular case in Colorado, the boys had assigned different point values to the girls. So if you could get, you know, Jenny in a bra, that was worth a certain amount of points versus Jenny nude versus Becky in a bra and Becky nude. And so it's kind of almost like this gamification of nudes and sexting. So I don't know. I'm imagining a part of it is revenge. I mean, we certainly know that among non-consensual sharing of nude images, so the dissemination of nudes taken in a relationship, usually they disseminate after the breakup, right? It's not typically before. Whether or not that's the intent, I think it's important, though, to note that even if the intent is humor, which we're seeing in a lot of younger kids, I have a study with some colleagues in Australia, and their intention for disseminating nudes, the main intention that we found was just humor to have a laugh. And so I think a lot of times the intention isn't the revenge, like you describe, but that is often perhaps the impact, right? And that certainly is going to differ if you are a 25-year-old adult or, you know, a 15-year-old teen, it's going to have a different impact. 
Yeah, and that also has me thinking about the legal implications of if adolescents are doing this who are underage and posting nude photos and other things like that, that is a whole different legal terrain because then that falls in the realm of child pornography. And these people could potentially get in a lot of trouble if those things were shared or discovered. So yeah, this is a very disturbing phenomenon in a lot of ways with a lot of potential implications. And I think one of the other differences when we're talking about how this is related to revenge porn is that I think oftentimes with revenge porn, they want those images to be shared as widely as possible because they really want to humiliate the other person. And in this case, these slut pages are often these very secretive kind of groups. And so the other person might never find out that they were part of one of these slut pages. But it sounds like this is a complex phenomenon in that there might be different factors that are motivating it. You know, you talked about that gamification and, you know, sort of social influence and social bonding kind of element to it. I'm sure for some, there's probably a sexual arousal component to it as well. And then the humor component that you mentioned. So there could be a lot of things that are driving this. But something else I was wondering after reading your research is whether there's a connection here to the phenomenon of incels, that is, men who are involuntarily celibate. And I did a show on incels back in episode 133. And some of these men, those who are heterosexual, feel a lot of resentment for women because they feel like women don't want anything to do with them sexually or romantically. So I'm wondering whether some of these guys are using slut pages as a way of kind of getting back at women who they feel have rejected them. So do you have any thoughts on that and whether that might be another contributing factor here? Yeah, the intel stuff is fascinating, right? I think there's a whole host of research we could do with incels that would give us a lot of insight into culture in general. I mean, there's there's certainly a thought that in some of like the feminist scholarship, there's definitely a thought that as we gain, you know, as women and, and non-binary folks and transgender individuals gain more social power in our sort of everyday lives in the real world, quote unquote, the sex world and the porn world. And and that hidden world is still something that we should control these, you know, minoritized groups or, or we should still be able to punish or be more powerful as heterosexual cisgendered men than these other groups. So we're still going to punish them here, even though we can't maybe in public, um, but we will do so in private, like in our, you know, non-consensual porn sharing and and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that would make sense, right? If we're trying to think of what's the intent here, like what is it entertainment? Is it arousal? I think a lot of it seems qualitatively just like humiliating, right? Because it's not like they're posting these images like, look at this goddess of, you know, <laughs> of sexual energy. And she's just like, don't you just want to make love to her and feel her pleasure and give her pleasure and you and you can feel her pleasure too. You know, it's it's like F this whore and her. Yeah. So I could imagine that there's a connection there. Yeah, something that would certainly be worth exploring in future research in this area. Oh, yeah. I think it's particularly among men who are 20s or 30s who might engage in that. 
teenage boys, you know, they should know better, but a lot of this is just part of their world. Oh, the other piece I was going to mention, though, that made me think of this is the gaming chat rooms. I'm drawing a blank on their name, but they, I guess, I had a graduate student in one of my classes, and he presented on, like, misogyny and sexual violence or something in these groups. And so he thinks a lot of it starts like cisgender boys just get on there and they're just playing video games, but then they kind of get indoctrinated into this world of being homophobic and sexist. So as a gateway, I guess, maybe the incel would be the, the very uh, pinnacle of that pathway, but maybe that that's an entry point into this kind of thing. Yeah, the gaming angle is interesting because, you know, so much has been said and written about the impact of video games on adolescence and youth. But the nature of video games has changed so much in recent years where they now have that very social interactive component and that creates these opportunities for negative social influence to occur so you know when you're talking about video games themselves and what is their impact on people is it the game itself or is it that new social network that is creating that's having this impact and i think that would be something that would be kind of interesting to tease apart as well in research but something that you find in your work is that yes men are visiting these pages more than women but some women are visiting slut pages too. So I'm curious whether you have any sense as to why some women are going to these pages. You know, are they checking to see if their images have been shared or are women sometimes participating in the sex shaming or slut shaming of other women? What are your thoughts on that? We didn't ask about this in the study, but like I said, I, I bring this up every semester with my human sexuality students to try to just gain a better understanding from them so we can do better research on it. But my sense is that they do both. They are both visiting to see if they're on it or to see who else is on it. But as a way to also, if I put her on it, if I upload her stuff, then that'll perhaps elevate my status more or perhaps that will help protect me in some way or I'll look cool with the boys, like I can hang with the boys kind of thing. I get a sense that that's why they're visiting, but who knows? Maybe they're also finding some enjoyment in it. We don't know for sure, but I think those two potential motivators are probably on point. Yeah. And so women can sometimes be the perpetrators of online sexual violence as well, you know, just as they can be in person. Uh, yes, men are disproportionately more likely to do it. But, you know, when we're talking about a phenomenon like this and then further, you know, how do we go about stopping it or changing it? We need to really understand who's doing it and why. What are all the motivations here? Because if you don't have that full understanding, it becomes much harder to try and stop it. So let's talk about the social implications of slut pages. So specifically for people who might have a slut page made about them and they discover this, you know, how does that impact someone psychologically? I've seen some research suggesting that some of these forms of online sexual victimization are even more traumatizing than other forms of sexual violence because you can be re-victimized over and over again. And then there are these digital records of it, which can lead it to come back again later, even if the initial photos or videos are taken down. So how do these pages affect people? That's exactly right. We know that image-based sexual abuse in general, so revenge pornography, 
you know, non-consensual dissemination of nude images. And we didn't ask about slut page victims specifically, but in Nancy Jo Sales' work, it's very much consistent with the other image-based sexual abuse revenge porn victim reactions is that their symptomatology is like a PTSD, anxiety, depression. Some people who have ended up on these pages have contemplated ending their life or have thoughts of self-harm. And it is thought to be, you know, similarly explained by why cyber bullying is so harmful and in many ways more harmful than in-person bullying um, when we think about just, you know, elementary school kids and, and high school kids because it's there. You can't get away from it. I remember being bullied at school for a short period of time when I was in eighth grade and I was so relieved to get home every day because at least I'd be safe, you know, at home and I could get a break from it. But now if this happens to you, you know, kids, especially for teens and in high schools, you know, they could be texting about it all night. They could be on Snapchat laughing about it, you know, all week. They could be resharing it two weeks later. Like, remember when this was shared kind of a thing. So it's kind of a never ending situation. And that's something that I think it's important for people to know who are visiting these pages out of curiosity. It's important to know that these kinds of things can have a pretty harmful impact on those who are posted and that it's not just funny and that it's okay, I think, to point out to other people like, hey, this is messed up and maybe you don't need to like or LOL and reshare and retweet or re whatever, you know, part, whatever it is on the certain platform, the content that is shared. It's okay to say like, this is like, dude, this is fucked up. Like, let's not go to jail. And, you know, in the hopes that it becomes less socially normative in your group to do that kind of thing, right? Because we do know that in order to change behavior, you have to change your social norm within a group. So, if your group social norm is like, hey, we we go out, we get drunk, we get girls drunk, we videotape it all, and it all goes online, we don't consult any of them in it, then that's going to be a difficult social norm to change. Possible, but, you know, difficult compared to maybe another group that's like, we get drunk and have sex and we don't videotape it and share it. Or if it is videoed, you know, there's a good sort of unspoken rule that it stays between the two who are who are a part of that or the three who are a part of it or whatever. Yeah, I think you make a lot of good points there, including how this kind of victimization can follow you around, you know, not just throughout the day, but throughout your life. You know, if this happens and say you're at one particular university, you know, moving to another university or another part of the country, you know, this can follow you there because, you know, these things that are online can go and be exported all over. It can follow across different social media platforms and so forth. So the ability to kind of escape it or leave it in your past is very challenging in the digital era. And I think it's important to note too that it's also ruining everyone's fun. People like seeing naked people. People like sending each other nude images. People like videotaping themselves recording themselves having sex. That is fun for most people. And it's fun for a lot of teens. 
The issue is not doing the thing and sharing it with one another. The issue is when it's disseminated widely without people's consent. And so if you are a part of that dissemination, think about it as like you're ruining the fun for other people who are trying to engage in this kind of thing consensually because you're making it more likely that it's going to be riskier, more harmful for them too, because you're changing, you're part of changing this norm that we're all just sort of accepting non-consensual porn distribution when there's a lot of people who are trying to engage in this consensually. So I think that's another perhaps like prevention angle we could take that might resonate a little bit more with people than like, you know, you could end up in jail or you could, instead of like a risk this is all horrible framework. What if the framework is like you're ruining the other people's fun? You're ruining, you're making this so that no one can have fun, right? You're ruining it for everyone. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of different angles that you could come at this from in terms of trying to change or stop the behavior. And I think, you know, part of it is that, yeah, some people aren't aware of the consequences of this. And part of it, too, is that we don't have consistent legal consequences for this kind of thing. You know, oftentimes it is very difficult to enforce uh, revenge porn or other kinds of laws that center around non-consensual things that happen online because it can be harder to track down you know where this originated and who is held responsible for it and so forth especially when you layer in like multinational companies and other things that might be you know in charge of the websites or other things where this information is posted so who's accountable how do you do that it just becomes this legally fraught thing that I think a a lot of governments are still grappling with, you know, how do we best combat this? And I think that's just been the story of the internet all along is that we've always been behind the curve in terms of how do we regulate this? And we're just, we're always one step or 10 steps behind of where the technology is. And that's why it's so important when we're thinking about how is this technology going to evolve in the future? We need to be thinking about that now so that we can try and design the frameworks to ensure that people are protected rather than us being in this constant situation of just always having to catch up. So there are lots of things that we can potentially do here. You talked about, you know, social influence as being part of it and, you know, sort of setting a good example for your peers. Any other thoughts on legally or in terms of interventions, other things we can do to stop this phenomenon of slut pages? Well, one of the things we're working on right now um, in Michigan, we've, we've done some analysis of school policies. And I think at least for middle schools and high schools, it should be seen as a type of sexual harassment. And if the school, you know, doesn't respond appropriately to try to investigate who is involved in something, then that school could be in violation of Title IX. If it's receiving federal funds and it becomes aware of a slut page and they don't do anything to try to mitigate the harm or or to provide consequences for people who are visiting, then that could be problematic. I think we could, if we started with you know, middle schools and high schools, because I think that's probably where it would be the most harmful when it comes to adult slut pages with fraternities and and even the military, it's unfortunate. And I'm sure that is also harmful in many ways, but that underage, really young, 
developed from a developmental perspective, I think that's probably the most harmful. So getting schools involved, alerting, if you are a high school student and you, and you're aware of this, alerting, you know, a trusted school counselor or social worker or this kind of thing, I think could help at least get the ball rolling. And at least you did, you know, your part in trying to protect kids who might have content on there that they're not aware of or, or are aware of, and it's impacting their mental health. Yeah. So it sounds like another part of the solution is putting digital sexual victimization on par legally with other forms of in-person sexual victimization, because that's part of the issue here, it seems, in terms of if it's not being considered equal to other forms of sexual violence, then it's not taken as, as seriously in a lot of ways. Right, right. Yes, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about slut pages and how they impact people, what motivates people to use them, and also some of the things we can do to try and combat them. But lastly, do you have any advice for people who might discover this slut page was made about them? So you mentioned that, you know, for adolescents who are in school who might become aware of this, they can report it to a trusted person who might be able to take steps to shut that down. But any other advice more broadly for if you discover that this was made about you, how can you go about getting it taken down? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I know that for getting it taken down, so I know, for example, with the Penn State one, it was taken down and they started a new one, right? Unfortunately, there's no guarantee that if one gets taken down, another one won't pop up. It's like whack-a-mole, I'm sure. And that's why a lot of times banning things is usually not the answer. But I think especially if it's connected to another organization, and especially if the slut page, exposed page, burn page is specifically connected to a school a fraternity, sorority, a university, uh, certainly the military. I'm sure there are other ways that you could go within that organization to see if there might be some consequences or protection for you that you might not have such an easy time via law enforcement. Um, there's a couple of organizations where they are connecting folks like you could put in, you know, your zip code and get connected to somebody in your area who is knowledgeable with legal prosecution of, of such a thing or being able to access funds for revenge pornography specifically. And so I would advise perhaps going through the organization or, or one of these other funding mechanisms because unfortunately, I think law enforcement and I know because I get asked to work with law enforcement, particularly when it comes to teens, it's tough. They have a ton of content that gets turned over to them, and it's really difficult to sort out what to do. So I would advise going to these other organizations and then see if you need therapy, if you're having difficult emotions about this, there's nothing wrong with you. This is a violation of your trust, of your bodily autonomy, your sexual expression, and don't try to pretend like it's something you should just get over. It's something that could absolutely warrant counseling, therapy, but also to know that you're you're not alone and there's there's support groups out there, hopefully with some type of support, either financially, emotionally, legally, it can help you process that type of thing and get through it. But 
oh, I am so glad that I didn't grow up in an era where where we did that as teens because oh, I could imagine just me sending something to my boyfriend and something going horribly wrong would have easily happened to me at 16, 17. My heart goes out to folks who are dealing with that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to take care of yourself, seek out the resources that you need to protect your mental well-being, but also to bring in the appropriate people who have experience in dealing with this phenomenon. And I'll be sure to include some links to resources in the show notes. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Megan. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So you could go to meganmaz.com. That's my website. And you can sign up for my mailing list there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Megan K. Maz. I'm happy to answer emails or, or what have you. And it's always such a pleasure to talk to you, Justin. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.